Bookstack with Richard Aldous, the Books and Ideas podcast brought to you by AmericanPurpose.com. Uh, you can check our website for all the latest comment and analysis. And if you enjoyed last week's episode with Roya Hakakian, it's where you can sign up for the live Zoom conversation with Roya on Monday, April the 5th. Coming up on the show today, Paula Morantz-Cohen, Distinguished Professor of English at Drexel University and author of the new book of Human Kindness, What Shakespeare Teaches Us About Empathy. Uh, Paula, welcome to Bookstack. Thank you, Richard. So congratulations uh, on the book. What made you want to write about Shakespeare and empathy? Well, I have been teaching Shakespeare at my university for the past 20 years. Um, it was not my area of expertise as, a, as a, uh, an academic. Uh, I had done my dissertation on 19th century uh, British literature, uh, but when the Shakespeare scholar expert at my university retired, I decided to take over her course, and it became a passion for me. And um, I think in teaching undergraduates, and finding uh, how they responded to the plays and reading them closely, I found that they and I seemed to become more empathetic as we read, that there was about the plays, and particularly certain plays, um, a kind of insight into human nature, um, but also a compassion for human nature that was ex exceptional and, and really valuable to us. And I wonder, have you found that that's changed over time? Obviously, Shakespeare has become part of the debates around cancel culture at the moment. So, so how has Shakespeare and teaching Shakespeare changed over the course of your career? Well, it has changed in that certain characters and certain motifs, and particularly uh, uh, themes connected to, or characters, uh, female characters, uh, themes connected to racism, uh, anti-Semitism, have come to the fore uh, because these things have become far more uh, visible in our culture, and uh, we are more concerned about them now. Unfortunately, before, they were more invisible. But I will say that Shakespeare uh, tackles these these. Uh, themes with a nuance and a power that students recognize, especially when we read the plays closely. So even though Shakespeare has been subject to cancel culture in some quarters, um, I tend to think it's by people who haven't read Shakespeare. Yeah, and actually, not read him closely. It, it's one of the points that you make in the book that in many ways Shakespeare himself is navigating difference in these plays. Absolutely. Um, I really do feel that there was an awareness there of injustice in his society. At the same time, of course, that he was part of that society, and he was also a diplomat of sorts. He had um, a queen and, a, and patrons whom he was uh, writing and performing for. But I also think he had an unusual sensitivity and ability to see around the, um, the uh, givens of his age, and we see that in the plays. And I'm a big advocate, as I say in the book, for reading the plays. I mean, obviously, seeing them performed, and they were meant to be performed, is wonderful. And I, I, I advocate for students to do that every chance they can and to look at movies, uh, movie adaptations of the plays as well. But when you read the plays, you see how nuanced they are, and you can then see how much Shakespeare saw around those stereotypes 
of his age. So that one of the kinds of empathy that's required, the kind of empathy that you're talking about, is also historical empathy that the, the world of the 16th and 17th century is not our world. Yes, and that's something that as a teacher, um, I think I have to teach. I mean, um, it seems perhaps obvious, but it's become less obvious in recent years that, you know, that was a different world. Um, and yet, you know, the genius of Shakespeare, as I say, was both to represent the world and to see around its more egregious elements or to to be able to imagine the possibility of what it felt like to be on the margins of that society. And I do think that's a quality of genius to be able to see that. We, we can't expect everyone to be exceptional within a society, but Shakespeare was. Although it's one of the really nice things about this book is that you don't present Shakespeare just as Shakespeare, this kind of very uh, kind of single uh, faceted character. You show how he is able to present these differences of character and opposition uh, in society and within ourselves. But he himself changes over time and learns this capacity of what you describe as empathetic imagination. Yes, and that's part of the thesis of the book, that this is learned empathy, and that, um, I mean, I do think that most of us do change in the course of our lives based on our experiences, but that Shakespeare, in being a writer and, an, and a genius, um, learned in a way that perhaps was unique, in that each time he would write a play um, and create a character who might have been a two-dimensional or flat character, an antagonist perhaps to the hero, um, he would think about what it was like to be that person and often return to develop uh, the sketch in an earlier version in a later play. And that ability to fill in what it felt like to be marginal or to be other or to be um, a villain, for that matter, was part of this developing process of empathy. And I mean, particularly in regards to the villains and, and the historical villains as well, that is something that does definitely still catches the imagination in popular culture. I mean, those early plays around the War of the Roses, Richard III most famously, uh, which influenced things like Game of Thrones um, and, and, and has this kind of resonance uh, even today. That's right, and the Henriad, which includes Richard III, is, a, I think, a very important set of plays for Shakespeare. They're early British history plays. But Richard III is an interesting play, and I do love to teach it, but I do feel that it's a play that really doesn't, um, it has the potential for empathy for its character, Richard the third, uh, but, um, or Gloucester, as he's known in the, in the, in the cues, but, um, who it's never really developed. And I think it's because of that, that lack of development, and he's an uninflected villain, um, is what prompt, perhaps one of the things that prompted Shakespeare to go on later and develop other characters that were more dimensional. And I should say that that opening speech of Richard's, uh, where he talks about his disability, um, is, is, uh, does describe something that is, um, that, that makes us think that this character will be uh, make us feel empathy toward him. But nothing that he does in the ensuing play uh, develops that point.
Yeah, I suppose it, it's one of the reasons why the earlier Richard, Richard II, uh, seems to be a, a, a play which wasn't particular popu particularly popular, but has become much more so recently, because it, it is a play about transitioning from the medieval world to the to the modern world, and that so that transition between different ages seems to be something which speaks to us today. Yes, and Richard II, which was written after Richard III, is a more empathetic rendering of a character who at the opening, as with Richard, although a very different sort of character, seems like a character one wouldn't like. And I will say that whenever I teach Richard II, my students don't like Richard II at the beginning of the play, and they do like Bolingbroke, who will become Henry IV um, by the end of the play. Um, and... Yet, by the end of the play, their feelings have shifted. And not to say that they wholeheartedly uh, now like Richard and don't like Bolingbroke, but there is a sense that these are dimensional characters and they feel, and it depends on the student, of course, it depends on my mood, too, as to what I feel, that uh, Shakespeare has created characters that are far more rounded and interesting and, um, and empathetic than he did in Richard III. And that that divide between the public figure and the private man is something that Shakespeare seems to be fascinated with over his uh, entire career, whether whether it's Richard II, whether it's Henry V, uh, whether it's King Lear coming right at the end of his, uh, his writing career. Yes, and um, I think that public-private divide, uh, you know, in the history plays is fascinating because on the one hand, these are plays about politics. On the other hand, these are plays about family dynamics. And, um, you know, when I teach, I'll be teaching Henry IV Part One uh, in the coming spring term at Drexel. Um, I always look forward to the way students identify with the, the dynamics between father and son in that play and uh, the sense of what it means to be an adolescent, which is certainly a private element. And then, of course, in Lear, which is an extraordinary play and a play that every time I read it I see some, and see it performed, I see something new. But it is so much about parenting as well as it is about old age. But it's also about a king who, you know, is disgruntled in having to give up his power but, you know, uh, feels the need to do so. And uh, there's a politics involved as well as a, a private element as well. That, might, that must be quite an interesting play to teach with uh, young people as you're kind of bringing different perspectives that they, I, I suppose, in some ways are, are being asked to see things through the eyes of kind of someone who is coming to the end of his life uh, when they themselves are very much at the beginning of their lives. That's so true. And I feel... Um, you know, early on, when I began teaching, I, I really veered away from Lear for that reason. Um, I know that when I first read Lear when I was younger, it, it didn't do that much for me. But I have found that I guess by uh, discussing this issue of parent and child in teaching the play, we've it's really yielded some fascinating insights because I am, well, maybe the age of approaching the age of Lear, and my students are, of course, more like his daughters, and I have, I have children that age as well. So we are able to talk about that 
what it means to be the child, an adult child of uh, a parent who's aging, and from my point of view, to be an aging parent of adult children. And what that means, it's a very, you know, we talk about being marginal. Well, as you get older, you become more marginal in the lives of your children, as well as in life in general. But in becoming more marginal in the life of your children, that can be a very painful and difficult process for those of us who have been very much at the center of their lives for a long time. And we talk about that opening scene in Lear, which I, I feel tremendous um, is tremendously insightful about what goes on in the mind of a parent who doesn't want to give up that central place in the lives of his children. I wonder whether, I mean, when I was growing up, uh, there was no question that Hamlet was the the play that uh, figured not just most centrally in my life, but I I think of most people that I knew who were reading Shakespeare. Uh, I wonder if that's still the still the case. Is is Hamlet still the most popular play in the in the Shakespeare canon? I really don't know. I will say that I just taught Hamlet last term. And I had a very strong reaction uh, from the women in my class. Um, They were, one of them in particular, could not stand him. Although by the end she did say, well, I do think it's a great play, which I thought was something. She had been very hard on Hamlet. Um, But, you know, the way that Hamlet treated Ophelia, for example, became a, a, a central point in class discussion, and the women were extremely incensed by that, and the way in which Hamlet behaved after her death, acting, you know, uh, jumping into the grave and uh, boasting that he loved her more than Laertes, and all of that showmanship offended them greatly, especially after the way he had treated her earlier in the play. So this is very much in line with some of the thoughts that are occurring in the culture. So is Hamlet... Uh, still uh, so popular. I, I think it will always be popular, but maybe for different reasons, and it, it will be read differently over time. Um, I do think it's a play. I like to think, in the book, I think I talk about it as a the other side of Lear, in that I feel, I read Hamlet as a character who's struggling with moving out of childhood into adulthood. And that's the struggle, as I see it, of the play. And in Lear, I see the struggle as moving out of adulthood into something, old age, where you really are not at the center of the lives of your children. It is also fascinating. It's one of the themes that really comes out strongly in the book and, again, has this resonance uh, with contemporary debates that, I mean, I wonder whether part of the uh, the irritation that your students find um, in dealing with Hamlet is this sense of entitlement that he has. And that's something that you also bring out uh, in your analysis of Othello, where you present, for example, Iago in a, in a much more sympathetic way than would normally be done because, as you point out, there's a kind of an element of class resentment in his behaviour uh, and there's definitely an element of entitlement uh, to, the, to those who are around him uh, who ignore his more, lowly, his more lowly background. Yes, and that I think is so interesting that um, Iago has really gotten short shrift. Now, of course, he doesn't have a speech like... Uh, uh, Shylock's speech in The Merchant of Venice 
hath not a Jew eyes, you know, hath not a Jew the ability to feel like a Christian. There's none of that pathos in Iago. But very early in the play, there is that sense that he has been passed over for um, promotion. Uh, and in, uh, instead, Othello has put Cassio, uh, a man who, how does he put it, never set a squadron in the field, mere prattle without practice. Um, that this is somebody entitled who's been given this position over someone like himself, Iago, who has the experience and the knowledge um, to do the job. And it's ironic that Othello favors Cassio um, because it's, it's Cassio that Iago can convince Othello is being unfaithful with his wife because Cassio and Desdemona are of the same class and background. So I think there's an interesting irony circulating in the play where both Othello and Iago are marginal figures within um, that society, that Venetian society, and um, yet one in a sense, but each, each scapegoats the other. You talked earlier about uh, uh, reading the plays rather than rather than uh, always just seeing the plays. Um, but uh, Othello is a is a good example of where performance practice has changed dramatically uh, over the the last few years. For example, that it would no longer be in any way acceptable for a production uh, where a white actor uh, was wearing makeup in order to take the role of Othello. Um, I, I suppose that's that's a good example. Of where uh, we have to be, we have to be able to adapt and to take something that is 16th century and and find ways to repurpose it in ways that are uh, successful for our own culture. Yeah, it's interesting that you mention that use of blackface, which was done for a, you know, a long period for the, up through the middle of the 20th century. I don't know quite how. I think Anthony Hopkins may have played it in blackface or uh, brown face, as the case may be. But, um, you know, it's interesting to think back to Shakespeare's day because I don't know if he had available black actors in his troupe. We really don't know how this was played. But it might have been seen differently um, if it was done in blackface and it would be seen if done that way later on. Um, but certainly, yes, um, I think now the play, when it was done in blackface, I don't think it could have the power to make people see the racial injustice that's central to the play. But when it's done with a black actor, as it is done now, I, I think it becomes very clear. And I think with, with The Merchant of Venice, it's the same. It, it so much has to do with the performance of the character of Shylock. And you, you also cover uh, Measure for Measure, which is a, a play that uh, clearly you admire, but that you don't like because it's a world without uh, empathy. But again, it's, it's fascinating how the, the, the conversations that you have with your own students force you to rethink your own views about a particular play, because this seems to be a play that uh, really does speak to them about issues surrounding Me Too culture, for example, um, and that kind of the failure of empathy is is understood in a very different way, it seems. Yes, and it uh, actually is interesting to think about the reaction to Hamlet that I mentioned and think about when I taught Measure for Measure last year, 
um, the reaction that I got, again, from female students. In that play, um, there is uh, this uh, – I, I won't go into the backstory, but one of the characters is going to be put to death for um, having uh, had sex outside of marriage with his with his girlfriend, who he intends to marry, and uh, by this this uh, terrible uh, autocratic ruler who's been put in place temporarily, and um, the uh, man who's been condemned to uh, to die asks his sister, who is supposed to become a nun, uh, is about to become a nun, to intercede on his behalf with the ruler. And the ruler suddenly is overcome with lust for this young woman who's about to become a nun and says he will spare her brother if she will sleep with him. And she goes to her brother and reports this. And, you know, the line in the play, greater than our brother is our chastity. She refuses to concede to the ruler's demand in the past, this my students couldn't believe this. They said, what kind of woman is this that will not sacrifice her virginity for her brother? Um, and I tend to agree. Uh, but this year, or last year, when I taught the play, uh, the response was the opposite. And the students felt great admiration for her for holding to her beliefs and her her body um, in the face of so much pressure. And so I'm a, I'm a bit confused. I wonder if this is abstract reasoning. One of the students said, which I think is interesting, personally, I would sacrifice myself for my brother, but I admire her for not doing so. So there you go. But it's, it's, it's interesting because it's, a, it's a, actually a very, um, it's a very nice moment in the book because as you, you discuss this, these these horrible circumstances of what is actually going on in the play and uh, and your students responses to them and but you openly say is this my own failure of empathy so you recognize that uh, to some degree that a new generation coming up with new ideas is forcing you to rethink things that you had held over over a number of years that's so true and I think as a teacher, it's particularly hard, and especially someone who's taught for a long time. Um, but I think it's something I've learned from Shakespeare, this ability to change. Um, one of the changes that has occurred in the classroom is that there is more power uh, among the students. The students have more power to state their point of view and to have it listened to. And although at times I think that this may be too great, at other times, I feel it's been very useful to me and humbling to me to to hear these points of view and be forced to rethink some of the assumptions I've held for so long. And ultimately, it's something that makes teaching really um, worthwhile for me is that I never know what I'm going to learn in the classroom. And I think that's uh, that's one of the reasons, perhaps, why you end up uh, with um, uh, the uh, Winter's Tale. Uh, not as of all the of all the plays that you cover uh, in the book, this is the only one that I've I've never seen on stage. But it does it does actually seem as if perhaps it is a play for our time because the way that you describe it, uh, yes, there's there is a kind of a certain nostalgia for the past, but it emphasises the importance of forgiveness 
and of that word again of of empathy. Yeah, yes, the main character Leontes, who behaves unforgivably in the first act, um, and essentially kills his young son, his daughter, and his wife. As it turns out, daughter and wife are not actually dead, um, but. He's done something really unforgivable out of his jealousy, and whether even the jealousy was warranted or not. I mean, our tendency is, as the play is written, to feel that it was unwarranted. But even if it were, because I think there are readings that could support that, um, the the fact that he behaved the way he did is completely unforgivable. And yet, at the end, and 16 years go by in the course of the play, at the end, Shakespeare manipulates things so that there is a degree of forgiveness. Um, things are not made entirely whole, but they are. there is a renovation that has occurred. And I think we're meant to feel that even the unforgivable, at a certain point we need to forgive and um, show empathy toward those that have wronged us. And the play is complicated. It's it's very, in some ways, a very flat play. The characters aren't dimensional, three-dimensional, the way some of Shakespeare's best characters are. But the play itself is so profound. And that use of time and the what time can do for us, um, I think, should make us think about the way in which we behave toward people or have behaved in the past and how we can re-see them and think about them more compassionately. And I, d- I did notice that the uh, the Royal Shakespeare Company, which hopes to return to the stage uh, in the fall, uh, it is actually putting uh, the the Winter's Tale on uh, for that season. So perhaps that perhaps there is a sense that this play, which has been somewhat neglected, does actually speak to our times in some way. I think so. I think the play poses some challenges for performance, but on the other hand, it has elements to it that are really dramatic and wonderful. And in some ways, I'm surprised that it hasn't been more popular. But I've noticed that I think in recent years it has become more popular, and it may be because um, it has been neglected. You know, So there is that revisionist tendency with Shakespeare to find plays that haven't been performed that need to be uh, performed now but also i mean the ending is so dramatic and spectacular um i don't know if i even want to say it. no don't spoil it i don't want to give it away for those who i know a lot of people haven't read or seen it so i think that the ending is extraordinary and for that alone it really deserves to be performed more so finally, Paula, I mean, there are, there are so many competing uh, things for our attention uh, these days with Netflix and uh, kind of everything that, everything that can be streamed, uh, whether it's TV, movies and, and, and music and kind of so on. Yet Shakespeare, century after century, has, has managed to grab our imagination. Uh, we have reinvented it. It has reinvented itself. Do you still think that in a hundred years' time, if we were having this conversation, uh, that Shakespeare will still be regarded as central uh, to the kinds of conversations that we're having with ourselves? Obviously, I do. Um, I also think that Shakespeare, (laughs) reading Shakespeare, lends itself uniquely to the experience of the seminar classroom. And I hope that will never disappear because being able to sit around a table, and of course this year we did it on Zoom, 
but I look forward to sitting around a table with a group of students and looking closely at the plays and hearing the different points of view. Because when you see a performance, even a brilliant one, you're seeing an inter- one interpretation. But sitting with a group of uh, engaged minds and looking at these plays together, um, we're able to learn so much about each other, about the world, about the past, um, and about the human condition. And you're talking about universities there, but is is this something that should still be studied in schools, that everybody should be reading Shakespeare, do you think? Well, I have a Shakespeare read-aloud, actually, which is mostly older people, um, and it is one of the most wonderful. We do it once a week. We've been doing it for over a year. Well, we've been doing it since before the, the pandemic, but we've done it all through. We've done now about six or seven plays, and it is wonderful. But I also think that students in middle school can read Shakespeare, and they do. Um, I remember my children read, I guess, Romeo and Juliet and Julius Caesar then, and that stayed with them. I mean, with a good teacher, Shakespeare yields so much insight and so much value. Um, and I, I'm not the least of that is that ability to be empathetic toward those that are unlike us. So the book is Of Human Kindness, What Shakespeare Teaches Us About Empathy. It's written by my guest, Paula Morantz-Cohen, and published by Yale University Press. Uh, But for now, Paula, congratulations again, and thanks for joining us on Bookstack. Thank you, Richard. I enjoyed this. So that's it from us this week. Don't forget to check our website, AmericanPurpose.com, and to leave us a review on your podcast app. The show is produced by Demir Marusik. Do join us again next week. But for now, this is me, Richard Aldous, saying thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.